Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. We are going to land in some of the more basics of the Christian faith today, and so I'm excited about that. I, I felt like that uh, two weeks ago on Sunday night, I started hallucinating. I'd been in the prophetic scheme for so long. I was talking about Disneyland and Donald Duck on Sunday night, and so it's uh, it's good to get back to something as fresh and as exciting as forgiveness, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So you might take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm 32, a great Psalm of David, a Psalm in which he addresses the subject of forgiveness really from two different angles. First, the experience of forgiveness, and then he goes on and addresses some comments that go what I think is beyond forgiveness. And we're going to look at both of those aspects here this morning and how that relates to the body known as Fellowship Bible Church. You know, this psalm starts on a very high note. And by the way, Rich, it is Psalm 32, isn't it? Okay. Just wanted to be sure. <laughs> In Psalm 32... David begins with these incredible words. He says, How blessed is he whose transgressions is covered, is forgiven, and whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, he talks here right at the beginning of the psalm on a very high note, and he speaks here of the freshness of a clean conscience something that I would want everyone to have as a gift here this morning. The blessedness of a clean conscience. You know, one of the ongoing controversies that are surrounding us in our community in this present hour is the controversy that surrounds the Vertac chemical plant. You've probably been reading about that in the news, and perhaps you saw the little expose on Prime Time Live here this last week and, and the discussion that went on in front of a national audience concerning that particular controversy. Of course, the question that is under debate is whether it is safe to burn off those hazardous chemicals and in particular the, the extremely dangerous one that's called dioxin and to be able to burn that off into the atmosphere around the city of Jacksonville. Toxic hazardous waste. Those have been a growing problem, hadn't they, in the 1980s and 1990s. Probably it's gone further back than that, but I think it's particularly come to our attention in the, the last two decades as we've experienced uh, the chemicals that have been spilled or that have been released in the atmosphere that have polluted lakes and rivers and have reminded us that the things that we use in our modern day life, that there's a cost to those things. And oftentimes the cost is this byproduct that's called toxic waste. How do you get rid of hazardous waste materials? That's a good question, and that's not only an important question to ask in our day, but for some, and I think as I watched ABC the other night, for those who live around Jacksonville, uh, that might even be a life and death question. Well, I can't answer that particular question. I'm not a chemist. But this morning, I would like to deal with a toxic waste that is far more lethal than dioxin. That's my discussion here this morning. It's not contained in a Superfund site only. It is a worldwide problem, and everyone in here has felt it. And as with so many toxic chemicals, 
I think that each one of us in our initial reaction to this particular toxic material, we have tried to store it away, to bury it. But its potency defies burial. And over time, just like those toxic wastes that we know of in our land, the potency of this particular toxic waste finally escapes those self-made containers that you and I try to store it away in, and it seeps back into life. That's guaranteed. And where does it surface? And where does it surface? Well, it surfaces in a number of ways, and we'll talk about those, but its effects are seen in the disabling and the disastrous effects on the human spirit and on the interaction that people have with one another. It poisons, it hurts, it perverts, it sickens everyone it touches. The toxic waste is called guilt. That's what I want to talk about this morning. How do you dispose of guilt? I mean, David begins on a very high note as one who would have a clean conscience before God and man. He says, how happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Let me ask you, have you ever felt the toxicity of a polluted conscience? Have you felt that recently in regards to your own life? And what does it mean and what do you do when your soul, it feels like one of those super fun sights? It's all cloudy and dark. It has all kinds of seepages of, of, of human chemicals that destroy and pervert. Years ago, I read in Women's Day magazine the following answers to curing guilt. It was written by a, uh, a psychologist, a so-called expert who was trying to help people get away with guilt, do away with it, bury it, put it in containers and get it out of the way so one could go on living. And this particular authority suggested these following ways to get rid of guilt. First, he said, if you feel guilty, perhaps you should find an authority figure who says what you're doing is not wrong. <laughs> well, that's one way. Second way, he said, is that if you're feeling guilty, you might join a new peer group that has more understanding about your situation. A third way is, as hard as this might be, perhaps you just need to change your beliefs. You know, the issue here might not be that you need forgiveness. It might be that you need reprogramming. You need to repattern your way of thinking. And then finally, this authority suggested as a way of escaping guilt that you might just increase the activity which sometimes makes the guilt go away. Well, those are some of the practical containers that people use to store their guilt in. Now, you know, it's funny how you can read those and they sound ridiculous. But I want you to know this. We do it all the time just that way. We do. That's the way we want to store our guilt. And all this particular authority did was just watch people and the way they act and the way they handle things in order to bury it and store it and get it out of the way. And I think we have a whole country that is guilt-ridden but it's all suppressed down in these containers, believing that it won't come out. But it does. And it does in all kinds of ways, sometimes very exaggerated ways. Take the true story of a young girl named Julie. Very attractive girl. She was about 23 years old. And she suddenly found herself pregnant. And also abandoned by her boyfriend. Julie began to feel tremendous guilt and self-reproach for what she had done. 
She shared her burden with her friends, but her friends just simply assured her that everyone's doing it. It's okay. You don't need to feel bad about it. Your problem is you just got caught. But that didn't satisfy Julie. And she tried to talk to her mother, but her mother couldn't talk about it because she was so ashamed. So finally, Julie sought out a counselor, a professional counselor, who in hearing her feelings said this to her. She said, he said, and I quote, Julie, your problem is nothing new or unusual. You were raised in a very religious home and, and, and there were unobtainably high moral standards that were imposed on you since your childhood there. You became sexually active with a, with a man which is only natural for a woman of your age. When you became pregnant, your religious conditioning began to beat you down. We'll work together on these religious standards and these judgmental restrictions that are holding back your emotional growth. Well, Julie took that advice and she stored her guilt in that way and over a period of time, the guilt went away. Fact is, she gave birth to a beautiful baby boy and enjoyed that relationship with that young baby boy the first months of his little life. But then, about a year later, a neighbor came to visit Julie one day and knocked on the door. And there was no answer. She noticed the door was, was open, so she walked into a very darkened living room and she heard someone sobbing uncontrollably. And suddenly this neighbor found herself yelling at Julie, saying, Julie, what are you doing? And there was Julie, knees bent on the floor, rumpled, disheveled looking, tear-streaked face with hair all messed up and in her eyes, choking the life out of that little baby boy. Well, the neighbor was finally able to, to pry Julie's hands off that little boy. There was a pause, there was a silence, and then there was a, a choke, and finally the little baby began to breathe again. The neighbor found herself saying, Why, Julie? Why? But Julie was not able to tell her why. She didn't even understand at the time. It took months of therapy after that before finally Julie began to understand that, that these reactions, this very disastrous and extreme reaction, was the result of guilt that had burst forth in her subconscious. And in punishing this precious child, in fact, she was simply trying to punish herself. The self-reproach she felt for herself made her unworthy to receive this gift from God. Sin was never meant to be buried. It was never meant to be buried. Sin was meant to be forgiven, just as David says in the opening statement of this psalm. The reason for that is because we are moral creatures. Now, I know that's unpopular today, but we are. And buried sin will always resurface and it will have all kinds of Halloween-like masks that it wears when it finally gets to the surface. It'll wear the mask of depression. It'll wear the mask of rebellion or anger or loss of self-esteem or loss of transparency. People who are under guilt begin to withdraw from the circles in which they feel the guilt. They don't want to talk about it. The issue might come up and they don't want to mention it. They just pull back because the container wants to release itself in those particular moments. They become listless. They become fearful. As it says in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, in their spirit, they have to create deceitfulness there. And in carrying that deceit, it becomes a real burden 
Like what it says in Jeremiah 9, when Jeremiah is speaking to the people of his day and describing their actions, he says, everyone deceives his neighbor. Boy, you know that's a hard thing to carry. To be constantly trying to live life and at the same time deceive your neighbor. To not really want to be kind of transparent. Not being transparent is a tremendous burden that you have to bear. Always trying to cover yourself and cover your actions so that what people see is not what really is. That's a divided person. Yet Jeremiah says, everyone in my day deceives his neighbor. They don't speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. And then he makes this statement. They have wearied themselves committing iniquity. You know, a person who commits iniquity and then tries to look like he's honest on the front, that's a person who's just wearing out. He's getting tired. He's carrying a bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier load. Yet David says in verse 1, How happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, taken out of the way. And yet so many of us don't experience that kind of freshness. We experience the boulders of deceitfulness. Sin makes life hard. Buried sin makes life harder. And the guilt that goes with it. And yet I look to the cross that's right behind me. You know when I look at the cross, you know what I think about more than anything else? When I look at the cross that's up above me, I think of one word, freedom. That's what the cross represents, freedom. It tells me how to be free. It tells me where to be free. Tells me how to be free and that you have a person, a God-man who came to earth. Jesus Christ took my sin, died for me. But He did not bury those sins. See, that's what I want you to understand. Jesus Christ didn't bury them in a container. He hung out there publicly to declare that sin is sin. It can't be explained away. Sin is wrong. No excuse. That's why it was public. In dying for those sins, the severity of sin, that is, not just one sin, but any sin, has not been ignored in Jesus Christ. In dying openly for those sins, sin has been exposed for how wretched it really is. See, some people get to where they've sinned so long and so much, what they want to say is, God could never love me. I'm so bad. Only thing I need is to die. You know, people who come to that place have come to an accurate place about sin. Those of us who don't feel like we should die are not accurate about our sin. That's how bad sin is. Any sin before a holy God. And what Jesus Christ did hung out there is He said, it's this bad. Needs, you need to die for it. But the good news is that He died for it. That's the good news. Gives you a way of escape. Gives you a place to hang it so you can go free between you and God. That's what's so exciting about the cross. The cross also tells us where that freedom is to be applied. That freedom is to be applied, if you think about the cross, vertically in our relationship with God. We're to have freedom. It's to be an open, honest, loving relationship. It also tells us just like a relational compass, it tells us how to, we're, we're to be free with one another. It points to each other. I'm to be free with you. You're to be free with me. I'm to be open with you. You're to be open with me. We're not to hide anything. We are sinners. That's okay. 
Because in the cross, there's freedom. That's what the cross tells us. So we have this choice, and the choice is before us even in the beginning. Because notice in verse 2 it says, it's the Lord who imputes guilt. It's not your conditioning. It's not your parents. It's not the world in which you live. It's the Lord who imputes real iniquity. So the choice is either to carry or to bury the toxicity of sin and then suffer the poisons of weariness that suffer, or it's to believe the cross of Christ and to experience the freedom that comes with being and feeling forgiven. Sounds easy, doesn't it? You know, when I present it like that, it sounds so easy. Because who would want to bury all those things and not admit guilt and have that kind of freedom? Who wouldn't want to do that if that was my choice? But you know, life is always cloudy. It doesn't make the choices appear that clear. And so in our natural instinct, we don't choose the cross. No, even David didn't choose the cross. I mean, this psalm starts on a very high note. Fact is, if you look at a lot of the psalms, they start on a very high note where the, the author of the psalm is experiencing the freshness of this relationship with God. I mean, he starts by saying, hey, I am free. But David didn't start there with his particular sin. You know where David started? He started in verse 3. That's where David started in this process. It's the place that you and I start. It's the, the first response, the natural instinct that we all have. And here's what happened when he sinned. He sinned, and then after he sinned, he did this. He says, I kept silent about my sin, and my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, Thy hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe this morning, as I speak, and I do believe this will take place, there will be some here who it will be like the voice of God is speaking off these pages to you. Because as I speak, that little container is just cracking open. And all that stuff wants to get out and be relieved. But you're going to have to follow the psalm. Well, here's what this says. David says, I kept silent about my sin. He doesn't tell us which sin it is. Uh, just historically, there is a sin that comes to mind that most people focus on. It was the, the sin that David had with that woman Bathsheba. Uh, from time to time, all of us can look back on a particular sin where that sin made us feel like this. I have mentioned this before, I think, in the discovery classes, but I can remember one particular sin that was so out of place to the setting that I felt that. It's when I was in seminary. First summer in seminary, we took this, this Greek course where everybody was going to crash into Greek, and I had not been a good student in college, <clears throat> to say the least, and, and I was determined to be a good student in, in seminary because this was God's work. And so I, I went through the course, and I did pretty well all the way through the course. In fact, some of the guys started saying, man, you really can understand this stuff. But I was determined to make a good grade in this Greek course to kind of really more to prove to myself I was good than anything else. And it came to the final exam, and I was just a few points away from an A. And in the midst of this exam, I cheated. I did. Purposefully, intentionally, I cheated because I wanted to make an A. And I made an A. In fact, I was one of the only ones who made an A. 
But let me tell you what it felt like after I made that A. I can remember some of my friends would be talking over in the coffee shop and somehow the languages would come up and they'd say, Robert, Robert knows Greek. <laughs> and when they would say that, it was as if somebody took a spear and just chunked it through me. Because I didn't feel any success in that. I felt shame. And I buried it down there. And I kept silent about my sin. And every time we would be in a classroom or somebody would pray to God and mention something about, oh God, thank you for forgiving me of my sin, all I would hear would be the chant in my soul that just said, Greek, 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 Greek. It's <laughs> all I ever heard. And the last thing I wanted anyone to bring up was the languages. Because I didn't hear language. I heard shame. And it affected me. It impacted me everywhere I went. And then it came that gosh awful day that I felt like I had to do something about that. And it was so scary. But I was dying inside. Maybe that's where you are. That's where David was, but notice what he says in verse 5. This is the key verse of the psalm, by the way. David says, I acknowledged my sin to thee and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and thou didst forgive the guilt. Oh, that's the blessing part. Not just the sin, but the effects of sin. Thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. For I can remember. And you, by the way, you ought to circle that verse and wear it out before your life is over. This is the verse for the Christian life. Notice, again, he doesn't mention what sin you can put in your own sin. I acknowledge my... What would you put in there to thee? Well, I acknowledge my sin. But you know, oftentimes sin has to be publicly acknowledged. Just like Jesus publicly acknowledged it. So that gosh-awful day came when I walked in to my professor. And my sin I did not hide. But I said, I cheated. I did it. I, I, you know, I didn't know what got into me. But I sinned. And yet to walk out of that office suddenly feeling free with God and free with man was a wonderful, liberating experience. Seemed so simple at that moment, but it took me months to get to that point. You know, there are going to be times, though, that you're going to acknowledge your sin to God, and maybe there's nothing you can do about saying it to someone else. Maybe it's just going to be to God, or maybe you even say it to the person, and they don't forgive you, but you've done your part, and you still feel guilty. What do you do in those moments? You know, there can be several reasons for still feeling guilty after you acknowledge your sin. It might be that you really don't understand just the grace of God. It might be that maybe there are reasons that need to be explained in all that. But I want you to know that all God requires is a sincere confession. That's why it says in verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word means no insincerity. All He requires is a sincere Confession. We're not, we don't like, need to be like the heretical group in the 13th century known as the flagellants who went around Europe beating themselves with chains and whips so they could suffer enough in order to receive God's forgiveness. And yet, you know what? Some of us act just like the flagellants. We sin, we know we've sinned, and then we go on this process 
of hurting ourselves because we think that will in some way atone for our iniquity. No, there's just this wonderful forgiveness in the cross, period. That's the wonder of it. Bruce Larson tells the story of a young man in the Philippines who got involved in ministry and yet he was haunted by a sin that he committed a number of years back. And though he repented of it, asked forgiveness of it, every day he felt the haunting seepage of that chemical called guilt spilling out into his soul. And yet he felt like, I've asked forgiveness. Why can't I be released? And somehow he felt like God just is not going to forgive me of that sin. He, he met a, a, a woman in the church, a very godly woman in the church who was well-respected, who several times had said in the midst of conversation that God spoke to her. And so one time in his own conversation with her, he, he kind of challenged her on that. He said, he said uh, Sarah, if, if, if God spoke to you, then ask him next time he speaks to you to tell, to tell you the sin that I've committed. So a few weeks passed and one day he bumped into her and he said, and he was being, he was joking when he said it, but in reality there was a seriousness in his voice and she picked it up and he met her and he said, well, did God speak to you? And she looked at him and she said, he sure did. Did you ask him about my sin? Yes, I did. Well, what did he say? And she paused for a moment and she said, he said to me, I don't remember. That's the wonder of the cross. As bad as it can be, as horrible as it might feel to you, the wonder of the cross is when you sincerely ask, God completely forgives. Isn't that a great thought? Doesn't that just feel wonderful to the soul? To know that you can be forgiven like that. If you'll notice at the end of verse 5, there's this little word, selah. You see it occasionally in the Psalms. The word selah just simply means to pause, to stop, to reflect. The reason the, the writer put that in there is he wants you to stop right there and not go past that point until you feel forgiven. That's why. The rest of the Psalm would be meaningless unless you stop there and ask the question, do I feel free? Do I have a clear conscience between God and man? And if you don't, then like Jacob, you need to wrestle with this truth until you have wrenched from it the freedom that God has promised you so that you can be blessed, have the iniquity of your soul forgiven. Well, that's the main body of the psalm as far as forgiveness goes. But I want to turn from that and go to the last half of this psalm because this is what I call beyond forgiveness in a way. You move from verse 5 in this sense of how to be forgiven and gosh, I would not want anyone to walk out of here no matter what you have done and no matter how bad you think it is, if you leave here not knowing that forgiveness is offered here, you've missed it all. But then in saying that, there are some, there are some insights that go what I call beyond forgiveness a lot of wisdom in this psalm, starting in verse 6. Because when you move into verse 6 all the way through verse 11, if I could just kind of bring it to what I think it's trying to say, he is addressing in a subtle way some forgiveness fallacies. I just told you the truth of forgiveness, but there's also some exaggerations about forgiveness that seem to sometime run rampant through the Christian community. And I want to 
look at those from the standpoint of these verses. First of all, look at verse 6. He says, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. In other words, that forgiveness is real and it's being offered. But in saying this, he speaks of a time period of forgiveness. A time when thou mayest be found. And then he follows that up with the next verse that says, Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Wow. Well, what I take this to mean, and maybe this is one of the fallacies that I've heard, is that God has no time limit on His forgiveness. That's a fallacy. God does have a time limit on His forgiveness. It's given in that picture of the flood of great waters. Now, if you were an Old Testament saint and somebody spoke to you about the flood of great waters, there would be two very vivid pictures that would come to your mind immediately, wouldn't there? First of all, you'd think of Noah. Remember Noah? Living in a godless generation, calling upon the people to repent. And God comes to Noah and He says this, Noah, my spirit will not strive with man forever. That's a hard statement. But it's a true one. In other words, my loving kindness and forgiveness is not offered indefinitely. The other thing I think of when I think of the flood of many waters is the parting of the Red Sea. And in particular, the character Pharaoh. You know, over and over as you move through those passages of Pharaoh, as Moses went and made the appeal to let the children of Israel go, it made this little line at the end of those discussions. It says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. He heard the truth. It made sense to him. He knew he was wrong in the plagues that would come, and yet he would bottle all of that and he would stuff it down. And it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And there came a moment in the midst of that hardened condition when he was at a place, not that God wouldn't have offered forgiveness, but that he was beyond forgiveness. And he perished. He and his army. You know, there are people who reach a place where things are so shut up in their life, there's no ability to be transparent that they go beyond forgiveness. There's a time limit that's involved here. There is a place where forgiveness gives way to judgment. The forgiveness of God is offered to you here this morning. And if you feel bottled up, don't let this time go because you put just another casing around it. There comes a place where God's Spirit will not strive with you forever. Not in these offerings of these great gifts. So that's one fallacy that I see. The second fallacy comes in the verses that follow starting in verse 8. Let me give you the fallacy first and then I'll explain it and illustrate it. Forgiveness is not synonymous with full reconciliation. Forgiveness is not synonymous with full reconciliation. Now listen very closely. In verses 8, 9, and 10, I think what is being described here is a process of reconciliation, a full process of reconciliation that forgiveness only starts the process. Notice he says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
This is a forgiven person who's reached out and received that forgiveness. But once he's received that forgiveness, God says, that's not the end. That's just the start of a new beginning. Let's go on and finish it out. And let me tell you what you need to do and where you should go and how you should finish out the process now that forgiveness has been granted. That's what verse 8 is introducing us to. It's a process that goes beyond, I think, forgiveness. Now, why is it important to know that forgiveness is not synonymous with full reconciliation? Let me give you two reasons. Write these down. First of all, some have tried to use forgiveness to excuse themselves from the responsibilities that then bring full reconciliation. Some try to use forgiveness that excuses themselves from the responsibility that then brings full reconciliation. Let me explain it this way. Let's say that today, church is over, you see me go out to my car, my old seven-year-old Pontiac, and I get in and I start backing up and you notice that I'm backing it into your brand new Mercedes. Okay? And so... You're just walking out of church, and as you walk out of church, you see this, and you see the glass shatter on your new car, and the whole right side kind of fold up like a hamburger. All right? And you're aghast, and you see me jump out of my car and run over and look at all these dents and creases that I've now placed in your brand new car with my old one, and you see me bow in prayer. And I pray these words, Dear Lord, please forgive me for being so preoccupied and clumsy. And give my dear brother grace as he sees the extensive damage that I have caused out of sheer negligence and provide for his financial needs. As he takes this car to have it repaired, thanks Lord, amen. And as I drive away, and as I drive past you, I wave and smile and I say, Everything's okay, brother. God has provided me forgiveness, and I have prayed that God might provide for you provision. Bye. <laughs> now, would, they, would that take care of it in your mind? Would you feel that this part of the cross has been fulfilled in my asking forgiveness? I mean, certainly, in asking forgiveness, I am forgiven. And certainly, if I came to you and asked you forgiveness, and I really had a contrite spirit, would you forgive me? Yes, but that doesn't end the process, does it? And yet I know many people who over and over and over again go through life using forgiveness as an excuse for full reconciliation. See, when damage has been done to someone, forgiveness starts the process. But one must go on and restore what is within his or her power to restore. And how do they know what they need to do once the damage has been done? That's what verse 8 is all about. You go to God and what God says, okay, you're forgiven. It's clean. You need to feel okay about that. We make mistakes. But now I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go so that we can make life feel not only free, but others can feel free towards you. And you know where I see that so much? You know where there is more guilt than in any place in American society? 
It's in the issue of divorce. Because here's a man. I'll use a man since I'm a man. It can work both ways. But here's a man, he grows up, he gets married, he has a couple of children, and at some place in his marriage, he decides to forsake this woman. It's not because of what she's done, maybe they've hurt each other, but whatever it is, he plays the role of the offender. He leaves her, he leaves his children, he goes out, maybe he remarries or she remarries, but he's out just kind of wandering around, but because he settled it in the court, in his mind, it's over. So he takes all that guilt and he buries it down in there. And he goes through life, but what he doesn't realize in all the relationships that follow, every time marriage comes up, there's this little seepage of guilt and bitterness and anger and reminders of his failure. And it becomes heavy and he carries it through his life. But now he finds another young woman and they get married. And in the midst of that marriage, they come into a church. And all of a sudden he hears the grace of God preached. And in the midst of that, that canister breaks open and he realizes, I have sinned. So he receives the grace of God. But then he makes a fatal error. He uses the grace of God and the forgiveness that's been extended to him to then say, I have no responsibilities for my past. But if he were to go on and to fall into verse 8 and let God instruct him and teach him in the way that he should go to counsel him with his eye upon him, he will find that much more will happen. And he will find that he can't clean up all that has been done now. There's been remarriages, new families formed. But you know what he will find? Because in that forgiveness, he'll feel free for a moment. But in time, he will still feel unreconciled. And though this part of the cross has been achieved, this part hasn't. So every time his child visits him, every time he calls his ex, there is this guilt. But if he listens to God, he will do whatever needs to be done to correct the damage according to God's word. And when he does that, and sometimes it will mean sacrifices to do whatever he can within his power, he will feel towards his children and towards his ex-wife and to all those who are around during those times as he is zealous to vindicate himself before God. He'll feel free. But if he goes on and uses forgiveness as an excuse that he is set free from those responsibilities which God's Word says are there all along, he will never feel the full forgiveness of the cross. That's what I'm talking about. Some people also try to use forgiveness to excuse themselves from rebuilding healthy relationships. You know, for over 30 years, my father lived, and he did a lot of good things, but he was also a very selfish alcoholic. I lived in that home. I experienced him doing whatever he wanted to do when the moment arrived. My mother experienced that as well. There were times that she got so disgusted in those occasions that she would want to leave. And my dad was very adept at racing back to her in those moments, just as she was putting the first few clothes in the bag and professing forgiveness and sorrow and saying I'm sorry and pledging his love to her. And so she would unpack her bags and as she unpacked her bags, as I learned later, 
what he was hearing in that was that she was accepting him as he was, but she wasn't. And so the cycle would repeat itself. And for 30 years, I watched clothes go in and out of the bag as he used forgiveness as an excuse for building a healthy relationship. Then when I was in seminary, or after I was in seminary, when I was in Tucson, I got word that my dad on a drunken binge walking out of the house had pushed my mom away as he went to the car. And he didn't know this, but he pushed her into a table and snapped her neck, broke it. She was in the hospital with pins in her head for six weeks trying to be restored in all that. And God used that moment in a very miraculous way to allow me to share the gospel with my dad and bring him to Christ. But I remember sitting with him, talking to him about that forgiveness. And he said, I don't need to be forgiven. I mean, he was really hurt that he had hurt my mom. But I remember in the midst of that, he understood that he could be forgiven. But immediately after he received that forgiveness, all he wanted to say was, well, I'm forgiven. Now let's go home. And I said, no. For the first time, I became a peer. I stood in front of my dad and I said, Dad, it doesn't work that way anymore. We're going to have to rebuild. And my father had a real difficult time with that. But I told him there was no way he could ever see my mother again until he demonstrated faithfulness. So for the next year and a half, my father first went into a detox center. Second, he went into a halfway house. He moved to another city. And he did that for a year and a half until he rebuilt enough trust to restart the relationship. And we put some anchors, some stakes in the ground that said, never again. And if you do, there'll be consequences. Well, I can't say those last years of my dad and my mom's life were, were super, but they were good. They rebuilt their relationship. It started with forgiveness, and my mom forgave my dad, and they were reconciled to everybody's amazement. But forgiveness only started the process. Walking by the Word of God, letting God counsel you in the way that you should go, that's what won the relationship back. And it's the same with everyone else that's in this room. Yes, forgiveness, but let's not forget the last half of the psalm, that we must do what we can to rebuild and reconcile the damage that is within our power to do so. Now, we're not going to be able to do everything, but if people just see us do a little thing, if you just send one child support check and say, forgive me, and you can count on this every month, you can't have a new marriage, but you can, within your power, undo the damage. And that forgiveness not only then goes this way, but this way. And you know what that builds over time? A healthy community. The exact thing that we're not experiencing in Little Rock, Arkansas this day. Look at the helpful figure that's in verse 9. Or verse, yeah, verse 9. It says, do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Now, he's just taking this natural figure of a horse or a mule. They have this instinctive nature to pull back from a human, not to join with a human being. 
They have to have a bit and a bridle to pull them along in order for them to finally overcome those natural instincts. They have to have some parameters. What he's doing in that illustration is saying that's the same with us. We want to be intimate with each other, but in our natural state, we do not have the ability to do that. We need the bit and bridle of God's Word to pull us into that kind of intimacy and obeying that. That's what brings about that intimacy. But apart from that supernatural Word and a submissive spirit, there can be no intimacy between God and man or between man and his brother or his sister. Because in our natural instinct, we're always pulling away even while we want intimacy doing just the very opposite of what we should do. And that's his encouragement to us. Now, if I were to summarize verse 9 in a, in a moral statement, it would just be, don't be a donkey. <laughs> now, I used to say it a different way, but now my speech has been sanctified, so <laughs> don't be a donkey. Well, verse 10 and verse 11 bring us to the end of the psalm. By the way, I meant to add to that the last line or first line of verse 10 because he says, if you pull away, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But now look how the psalm ends and it ends on a high note. It's kind of a summary of the whole thing. It's describing what it's like to be, in, be a person like this that I've described and in a community like this. It says, he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. That is not hard to do for a person who is experiencing forgiveness this way and that way. It's not hard. But if you feel a check on your spirit, maybe there's a canister that's been loaded up and buried. See, there should be great rejoicing for God's forgiveness is real and absolute. But there should also be rejoicing for God's reconciliation process works, brings people together when they allow God to counsel them to undo the damage that has been done. The result of all that is a very healthy church body. If it was practiced by the community, it'd be a healthy community. If it was practiced by the nation, it would be a strong and healthy nation. There was a little boy who passed a pet store day in and day out, and he'd see these little puppies in the window, and over a period of time, he finally decided that he would get the courage up and go in and ask how much those puppies cost. The store owner told him, and so for the next months that passed, he worked himself and saved every cent he could make in order to purchase one of those puppies. Finally, the day came where he went to the store owner and broke open his piggy bank, asked the store owner to count all his change, and the store owner broke out in a big smile and said, you have exactly enough. There's the pen. Go pick out your puppy. So the little boy went in, and all these little puppies, as they do, come racing out to you, licking your hand and gnawing on your fingers and those kind of things. But he went right past them to this one little puppy that was in the back end of the cage, somewhat lonely, and picked him up and brought him out and said, this is the puppy I want to buy. The store owner looked at him and said, son, you don't want that puppy. I mean, that puppy was born lame. He's got a hurt leg. And uh, you're a little boy that you need a, one of those... Puppies that can go out and run and jump and play with you. That's the kind of puppy you need. Little boy, seeing that, set the puppy down on the floor and lifted up his pants legs that revealed two braces that were supporting him from a past childhood disease. 
And he said to the store owner, yes, he's crippled, but I'm crippled too. And I thought since we were both crippled, we could be friends. If I could pull back my chest today, you could see my spirit, you'd see a lot of braces. If I could pull back your chest, I'd see a lot of braces there too. There is not one person here who deserves to be here. There's not one sin that you have done that should keep you from being here. This is a community of the forgiven. We're all here as cripples and we all need the healing grace of God. And this community, this spiritual community, needs to be a community of grace. So if you're a sinner, if you're new, if you're visiting, welcome to the crippled. Because that's who we are. And I hope we'll always be that way and accepting, as Bill talked about last week, and loving and gracious and compassionate to one another. But that's not the end. We're a community of the forgiven, but we're also a community of reconciliation. A community of healing. We're not like wild animals that stand apart from each other saying, I'm forgiven, but they don't have any ability to reconcile. That's not us. We're a community that says, yes, we're forgiven. Yes, we're free. Yes, we need to feel that. But yes, we need to reconcile so that we can embrace one another without any sense of guilt. Free. This way. Free. This way. That's the church family and forgiveness. Let's bow in prayer. And with your heads bowed, two questions, and we'll take a moment of silence. Question one, is there something you need to be forgiven of? If so, the cross says it all. Secondly, is there someone that needs you to repair the damage that you've done and you have the power to do it? If so, this is a moment to make a critical decision about being truly clean. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.